Matthew chapter 24, we're going to finish up in uh, chapter 24 tonight. And like I said, move into chapter 25. So go to chapter 24, we'll be in verses 45 through 51. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you remember, Jesus has been teaching that the set date for his return to the earth is not for us to know. We've been dealing with that. We're going to touch on that a little bit again tonight. His set, the set date for his return to the earth is not for us to know, but we are to be watching and ready for it. And we also, I'm going to show you this from the scriptures, should be able to recognize that it's getting close. We're not to know the exact day or hour, or not try to figure out the set date, but it has been set, by the way, and I'll show you that. But we're to be watching, ready, and as you're going to see tonight from this parable and others, when he comes, he wants us to be found busy doing the things that he has for us to do. Uh, go with me to Acts chapter 17. I want you to see that the date for Jesus' return has already been set. As you've heard me teach on many times for too many years, people have said, well, God's waiting for the, this, that, and the other, and as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, and like it's up in the air. And that's not how it works. Um, as you've heard, the gospel has been preached in all creation, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Romans chapter 10, verses 18 and following talk about how his word has already gone out to all the earth. But look in Acts 17, look at verses 29 through 31. Paul's talking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, God himself, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That day is already set, folks. It's already in motion. He's already fixed the day that he's going to judge the world. Now jump back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus has been teaching his disciples after his resurrection during those 40 days about the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, it says, When they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed, there it is again, by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So again, Jesus said, it's not for you to know, not for us to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed. They're already set. It's all in motion. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, though. The Bible also teaches, though, that we will, should be able to recognize that it's getting close. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, if you haven't, if you haven't gotten an opportunity to, I challenge you to go or encourage you to go to uh, First Baptist Merritt Island's website. 
Uh, and I preached just this past Sunday there, encouraging Christians not to isolate from each other during these days of the pandemic. And because of mainly because of this passage and how we're to be busy at work with what God's called us to do. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A couple things I want you to see that. We're to be actually getting together more, encouraging each other more, spending more time with each other, uh, and loving each other with our different gifts that we've been given more and more as we see the day approaching. And would we not all agree we see the day approaching? But the enemy wants us to isolate and the leadership and the world government sometimes wants people to stay home and don't let the government determine what you do when God says, make sure you spend time with people. I'm not just talking church attendance. I'm talking Bible studies like this and other ways that you can get together and encourage brothers and sisters. But all the more as you see the day approaching. We don't know the day, the hour. We're not to worry about it. It's been fixed, but we're not trying to figure it out. It's not for us to know why we're going to be taken out of here before all those things finally come to play. On top of that, we're to be busy, ready, working while he's on his way back. And we'll be ready, but we will see the day approaching. So Jesus' teaching in this parable back in Matthew 24 is that since we do not, do not know when Jesus will return, instead of, tr of trying to guess, we should just focus on doing what he's left us here to do. So he'll find us doing when he comes. Look again at verses 45 through 47. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The wise one, the wise servant is going to be the one that's busy doing when Jesus comes back. That's part of the reason why people thought I was crazy, but I did it anyway. And six days after having my left knee replaced, I preached at my home church. Why? Because that's one of the ways God's gifted me to encourage the body. It's one of the gifts I've been given. And I was given an opportunity to preach. And they, they, they called me and said, would you be willing to take this day? And I was like, yeah, but you do realize that'll be six days after I'll have had my knee replaced. And they said, well, do you want to change it? I'm like, no, let's do it. I believe God's going to give me the grace to do it. And if there's an opportunity to use my gifts, I want to be busy doing when he comes. And so... That's why I was glad to be able to teach Bible study this week. We could have easily just said, you know what? We haven't had Bible study for three weeks. I've just had my knee replaced. Let's just take another week off Thanksgiving. Then we'll just pick back up in December. And that was something I prayed about. But I, I couldn't get a piece about doing that. Why? Because I wanted to be with you. I wanted to spend some time with you, encouraging you and teaching you the word. We're to be doing when he comes. Now, we're only on this earth after salvation to accomplish God's purposes that he has in mind for us and through us and doing what he has for us to do. And if we're doing what he has for us to do, that will have us excited and at peace and ready for his return. Instead of worrying about trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back, Christians should be just busy doing what it is that God's gifted them to do. And as I'm going to show you from the scriptures, the Bible says that if you're actually just doing what it is he's gifted you to do on a daily basis, when he comes, you will be ready You'll be watching and excited and you'll be at peace. 
I, as I travel the country and deal with Christians all around the country, I've run into a lot of older folks recently who are sitting around in their homes, not doing a whole lot for the Lord. They just have been taught that church was Sunday morning and giving your offering and listening to the choir. And they just thought that's what being a Christian is. And now they're at the age of older time in their life and they're under the attack of the enemy. And they're going, I wonder if I've done enough. Have I done enough? And I say to them, instead of sitting around wondering if you've done enough, just do some things. Be used of God. Well, how does he gifted you? What are some of the ways you could get plugged into some type of ministry in your church or ministries you know about outside your church? When you're busy doing that stuff, you don't worry about all the other things. And the scripture actually says that puts our hearts at rest. Let me show you what I mean. First, go back to Acts chapter 13, verse 36. As you're turning there, Paul's preaching and he's clarifying to these people that when David wrote about God not letting his holy one see decay, he wasn't talking about himself because David died and his body decayed. But he was talking about Jesus and how his holy one didn't decay, his body didn't decay. But he says a very interesting thing about David in verse 36 of Acts 13. It says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. The corruption means his body decayed. Let me ask you this question. According to this verse, when did David die? When Exactly. When he had served and accomplished God's purposes for him in his generation, that's when he died. Folks, do, do me a big favor here. I know everybody's afraid to nowadays because of COVID. Take a deep breath. If you're able to do that, God's not done with you. God's still got a purpose and a plan for your life. And when he's done with that, then he's going to take you home. So now the question is, well, what is it that he has for me to do? Well, this is where you're going to hear something from me that's a little different than what we've been taught. Um, the church tries to tell you you ought to be doing this and you ought to be doing that. And all these different the nominating committees going to call you up and say, want you to serve on this, that. The Holy Spirit is the one who saved you. He's the one who's come to indwell you. He's the one who's chosen what your gifts are. I thought about taking a, a, a little study at this point and jumping over to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians about how God gives different gifts to us and we're not all the same part of the body and we all work together for His purposes. And hopefully you understand that however God's gifted you, look for ways to be used of him in those areas to just encourage people around you and point them to Jesus, whether they're unbelievers, whether they're believers. Some of you are really good at writing cards or intercessory prayer. Others have been gifted bank money when you can support ministries and different things like that. Uh, some of you just love to help with physical needs and Chris loves to do his behind the scenes stuff. He likes to do technology and sound and different things. He, he, he When you're busy doing what it is you're gifted to do, you're not all worried about Am I doing enough? You're just doing what he's asked you to do. And if he were to come today, you're ready. You know, they asked this one famous preacher, you know, uh, he, had he writes down every day what his schedule, what he roughly thinks his schedule is going to look like. Plan to do this, then this, then so on. And this guy asked him one time, what would your list look like if you knew Jesus would come back today? And the guy handed him the piece of paper he had already handed this. I'm just going to keep doing what it is he's called me to do. And a lot of us think, well, if we knew Jesus was coming back today, well, that would change things. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. You should be about what it is that he's called you to do and gifted you to do a day at a time. Go to 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 11. Peter says, His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, don't don't miss what he just said. He said, God's already given you. You don't need a second baptism and another filling of the Holy Spirit in the sense of another Holy Spirit come pour on you like some churches teach. You've already received with Jesus coming to indwell you everything you need for life and godliness. But now he's given us these promises that if we by faith on a daily basis believe what he's said and we learn how to tap into what he's given us already, we be learn to become partakers of that divine nature that's all within us. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15 and following said, After having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, my prayer is that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would understand him more, know him better, and understand the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance that's in the saints, and his mighty power available for us to be, who believe. In other words, I've heard of your salvation and the fact that you're loving the other believers. That's great. Now my prayer is that you'll grow in these areas. And there's so much more that's available to you. And so Peter says we need to understand that we can tap into and become partakers of this divine nature that already indwells in us. But look at verse 5 then. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? Increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, they'll be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, if you're focusing on growing in your knowledge of the Lord and you're loving each other, and that's what you're focusing on, everything else falls into place. You won't even worry about whether or not you're saved because it'll be confirmed because His Spirit's working in and through you. You're not going to worry about whether or not you've done enough because you're just too busy just doing what He's called you to do and loving life. And you're ready for His Return. Go to second. Uh, sorry, First Thessalonians chapter three. And I think that's why Jesus said, "Blessed is the one whom the master finds doing." Not just because he'll be rewarded. You're already blessed because you're doing. Look, let me show you what I mean. First Thessalonians chapter three. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So again, the focus is on what? Loving each other more, exercising your gifts, doing what it is he's let you here to do. And as you do this and work on doing more and more, your heart will be at rest. He'll get you blameless and ready for his return. And you're going to find the joy of the Christian life. Now, too many Christians, and some of us have been in those churches, spend all their time looking around at everybody else and what they ought to be doing. And I think he ought to be doing a better job with his family. I think she should be doing this. Or I think they should be, you know, singing the kind of songs I like. And we spend all our time sitting around looking at what we think everybody else ought to do. Now, just find out what it is that God has for you to do and you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, 
I'm working on a series of messages. I don't know when they're going to finally come to fruition, but I'm working on a series of messages right now in, in the preparation stages for the fact that you all do know that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, uh, his, his bait was you get to be like God. And by the way, they bit. And because they bit, we bit. And we've got that same problem. And listen, even though we're saved and forgiven of our sins, we still got that problem in our flesh, don't we? We all still want to be God. We want to determine when things would happen. We even get mad at God because he doesn't answer our prayers as fast as we think. Or when he does, we don't like the answer. Or we tend to look around at the people around us and we want to be God. Oh, and we also determine as we watch the news who should be judged and who should give, be given mercy. And we want to be God. And you just need to understand that. You got that problem. I got that problem within you. And unfortunately, as we get older, that filter goes away. You don't believe me? Go to McDonald's or Burger King early in the morning and just listen to those guys sitting there drinking their coffee. We all have a desire to think, speak out and spout out about what we think how the world ought to be. We all want to be God. You want to be set free from that? Take your eyes off of the people around you. And you say, Lord, I just want to walk with you today. How have you gifted me and how can I be used of you? And then just go get doing that. Just do the simple things that he's asked you to do. Don't try to make it supernatural and powerful. Just do the simple things. He's the one who empowers it. I would love to take the time to tell you a story tonight, which I used in that sermon at, at First Merritt Island on Sunday at the conclusion of the message, which illustrates how God could take a simple little act and supercharge it. But you'll have to go to the website at First Merritt Island and listen to that if you want to hear that story. But the servant... In the parable here in Matthew 24, 45 through 51, the servant that thinks that they can live for themselves and cram at the last minute or fake it at the last minute will be sorely wrong. And that person most likely isn't saved. Look again now at verses 48 and following. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, he's not coming for a while. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. By the way, the word hypocrite means someone pretending to be something they're not. If you go back and look at the root word for it, in the Greek it's tied to the theater when the thespians would wear a mask and pretend to be somebody else. That's what the word means, a hypocrite, pretending to be somebody or not. And he'll uh, cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, and in that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth now, don't miss this. This is talking about someone who's not saved, who was putting on a show, but when the judgment time came, was proven to be not for real. There's something here I don't want you to miss. First off, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who what? Do the will of my Father. On top of that, not only will Christians be reckoned with, we're going to see that when we get into the parable of the talents tonight. Not only will Christians be reckoned with and God hold us accountable for what he's given us to do after salvation. We won't be judging whether or not we're getting into heaven. That's already been set, taken care of and, and that's a gift from God. and He's not going to take that back. But we'll be reckoned with according to what it is he gave us to do in the meantime. But the lost world will be reckoned with as well. They've been given a life. They've been given opportunity. They've been given things. And they're going to be reckoned with as well according to what they did with the light that they received and what God wanted to accomplish in and through them as well. Now, i got to be honest with you. 
some of you may know this, some of you may not. I was the master of the last minute preparation when I was in school. I was. I was one of these ones that if the paper was due to, on, on Monday, I would write it Sunday night. And I got really good at it. My wife can tell, tell you, she and I were in seminary together and she'd watch how I'd study at the last minute and just cram it and go to bed and get up and get a great grade on the test. There was one time when I was in seminary, I'd taken this one course and uh, they have a whole list of different books. You had to choose one of these books to give a report on. Well, all of a sudden I realized, oh, dip, the book reports, the paper's due tomorrow. And I haven't even read a book. So I quickly ran to the library to go find one of those books. And surprise of all surprises, they were all checked out. There were no books available from that list. And so I ran back to my dorm. I was in the singles dorm at the time before Becky and the year before Becky and I got married. And I ran down the hall to this buddy of mine, Eric, who was in the class with me. I said, Eric, did you get one of the books from the reading list for our class tomorrow? He goes, yeah. I go, which one is it? And he, he told me it was on the Lottie Moon story. And, and uh, I said, can I borrow your book? He goes, what for? I go, I haven't gotten a book and I need to read it and make my, my, my paper. He goes, Jim, it's due tomorrow. How are you going to read it and then make a paper? And he goes, plus, I don't have time to give it to you for that long because I need it to finish my paper. I go, can I have it for the next two hours? He goes, what are you going to do in two hours? I go, if you let me borrow it for two hours, that's all I ask. He said, go ahead. I'm not using it for the next two hours. Ran back to my dorm room, read the introduction, looked at the writing on the back of the cover, threw it and wrote a paper. Gave him his book back two hours later and I got a 98. And I hadn't read the book. He had actually read the book, done all the prep, and he got a 96. And it bugs him to this day. He's a friend of mine. He's doing ministry up in Illinois. But here's the problem. As good as I was at the master of the last minute cram, I knew what the deadline was in all those instances. How would I have done if I didn't know the deadline? I would have been caught. I would have been dead. Oh, and by the way, I was one of those guys that failed all the pop quizzes because I wasn't ready for the pop quizzes. I didn't know they were going to give us, tell us when the pop quizzes are going to be, I used to always say. He goes, not the point of a pop quiz. Jesus says that we're to live every day as if it's test day and to be ready at all times, and this will have you prepared. Did you know that Paul thought that Jesus' return was going to happen in his lifetime? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me show you. And he was right to think so. He taught that it could happen at any moment and to be ready for it at any moment. Again, he, we're not to be watching for the uh, Antichrist. We're to be watching for the return of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 50 through 58. Look at how Paul writes this and how he words it. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. See, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Keep reading. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, as he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ, what is he saying we're to be doing when it comes to the return of Christ? Working. Doing what it is he's gifted you to do. Looking how to grow in your walk with the Lord and knowledge of Jesus by spending time in the Word and in prayer and growing in your walk with the Lord and then splashing that out on the people around you. We're to be always doing that. We're not to be trying to figure out the day of the hour and making Christians look like fools because, you know, we're dressing ourselves in white sheets and getting up on the roof because we've done the math and we figured it out. And we're to be just busy doing, always abounding. And so I want to encourage you, just like the scripture says, as we see the day approaching, don't get all caught up in all this political mess. Focus on how you can use the gifts God's given you to do more. Not because God says they're not doing enough. No, it will actually have you more and more and more ready for his return. All right. Now, go back to Matthew 25. Let's look at verses 1 through 13 in the parable of the ten virgins. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this parable. I think part of the reason is because um, too many Christians try to take parables and they try to make every little part of a parable refer to something. And you're going to mess yourself up trying to do that. Parables are stories that are told to teach point. That's the whole thing. They're not analogies or anything like that where everything represents something else. They're just stories that are to teach a point. And I could take the time to go back and show you in the scriptures how Jesus would tell one parable and the leaven in that parable was bad. But in another parable, the leaven was good. So which is it? Is leaven represent bad? No, you got to be careful. In this parable, we got a parable of the ten virgins. Let me read it to you and then I'll kind of lay out for you what I think Jesus is wanting us to see. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage, marriage feast and the door was shut. Now afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now. Jesus has just told a parable that taught that his return may not be delayed, but soon, any day. Isn't that what the first guy thought? Oh, my master's return is going to be delayed. It's going to be a while. So Jesus, knowing how humans try to read between the lines when someone's teaching, what's he really trying to say? He knew that they were going to be thinking, oh, Jesus just gave us a clue. His return is going to be quick. And he tells now another parable that says it could be a long time between when I go away. And when I come back. Did you know that Peter actually hinted in our scriptures that the return of Jesus might be a long time? Some of you might not have ever seen that. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. People have for years wondered, why is it taking Jesus so long? It's been 2,000 years now. Why is it taking so long for him to return? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 4. 
Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Did you catch that? Peter said, let me give you a little heads up. In the last days, there's going to be people that come out and they're going to say, where's his return? It's been a long time. So here the scripture even shows us that Jesus' return most likely was not going to be as quick as people like Paul and others thought. But they weren't wrong in thinking that it could happen in their lifetime. Why? Because Jesus had taught what? Be watching, be ready, because it could come at any moment. So it's not wrong to expect it in your lifetime. Those of us who are saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and I see the day approaching and it could happen maybe this week. We're not wrong in saying that. But at the same time, if we aren't prepared for the long haul, I've seen many Christians fall by the wayside because, well, they had all their hopes on Jesus coming soon. And well, I'm not so sure. You know, the Bible actually teaches that um, what really makes us ready for his return is the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And there's a hint at the oil being pointing to the Holy Spirit. And you know, the, Jesus promised that when we trust him as our Savior, uh, we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible calls it, Jesus described it this way in John chapter 7, around verse 37. He said, if anyone thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will never run out for those of us who are truly saved. I want to show of hands. I'm going to sit here for a second while I ask this question and bend my knee a little bit. Show of hands. For those of you that have been a Christian for a long time, have you ever gotten a little bit weary? Okay, good. You're lying if you say no. How many of you, though, show of hands, even though you've gotten weary and might have even been tempted a time or two to just not call it quits as much as just take a break in this walking with the Lord and serving the Lord. How many of you have experienced that supernatural, I can't stop because he's the one that keeps me going? You've got enough oil. Because he began the good work and you will finish it. But there are those who profess but don't possess. There are those among us who actually truly aren't saved. It's not our job to figure out who is and who isn't. It's not our job. But all through the scriptures, you'll see these warnings all that all the time. And that's why some people try to take them and say, oh, look, the scripture teaches you can lose your salvation. No, the Bible is very, very clear that um, if you walked away, you never had salvation. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter two. And look at verse 18 and following. Children, it is the last hour. I love it. The last time period right before the return of Jesus. It's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Now, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. All right. Do you see what he's saying? There's going to be those who are among us and we might even have been fooled like the rest of the disciples were fooled about Judas. But those of us who are saved or are truly saved and his spirit's in us, we even get weary sometimes. And the scripture speaks to us, don't get weary in doing good, because in due time you will reap. Keep always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor is not in vain. But it's the Holy Spirit who causes us to increase in love for one another. He is the one who establishes us in every good work and word. He's the one that gets our hearts blameless. He's the one that does it. And for those of you that raised your hand to both questions tonight about gun weary, but you know that supernatural, I can't stop because he's, he's the one making me finish. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Thank God he's the one holding on to you and you, you're not having to hold on to him. When our kids were little and we used to take them on walks and sometimes it'd be a dangerous little precipice or whatever, we'd always say, let me hold your hand, not you hold my hand. Because there's a big difference between their holding with their hand and me holding on to theirs. Do you understand? Thank God you're not holding on to him. He's holding on to you. Now, there's also one more thing I want to pull out from the parable of the ten virgins, and then we'll wrap up tonight with the parable of the talents. Not only does this parable teach that we must be ready even if his return is seemingly delayed, it also teaches that there's no second chance once you miss your opportunity. You see it? These virgins went and said, hey, we're ready now. And he says, you had your opportunity. I don't know you. And they're cast outside. They're cast outside. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. The Hebrew writer has been laying out some wonderfully deep theology about the sacrifice of Jesus and how his sacrifice has washed us clean. In Hebrews chapter 9, look at what he says in verses 27 and 28. He said, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When he came the first time, he came to deal with sin. He came to live the sinless life. He came to die the sacrificial death. He came to fulfill the prophecies as the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead by his own power. He's gone back to be with the Father. And he's interceding on behalf of those of us who trust him and are receiving him as our Savior. But when he comes, he's coming back for us first. He's coming back for us. Oh, is he going to come back and deal with the world in judgment? Yes, that's going to happen as well. But his... His coming, that the, world, the, the Jews didn't understand, had two parts. The first time was to come and be the Savior and the sacrificial sacrifice for the sins. And the second time to come and set up his kingdom. But his second coming has two parts. The second coming has two parts. The first part of the second coming is to gather his bride, those who are eagerly waiting for him and take us to be with him. And then he will set up his kingdom. Now let's go to Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, and we'll wrap up tonight with this, these verses, verses 14 through 30. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Now then he went away. 
And he would receive the five talents when at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he would receive the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. That's the reckoning we talked about earlier. It's an accounting term. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." But his master answered him, you wicked servant, wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, folks, this last parable ties it all together. And it teaches the underlying theme that has been in all three parables. The issue is not the when of Jesus' return, but what we do in the meantime between our salvation and Jesus' return. We will all be reckoned with. Now, we should take this seriously, but not be scared. Don't let the fact that God's going to reckon with you according to what it is that he gave you to do while you were after you were saved. Don't let that scare you. And I'm going to show you in a second why. But before before I do that, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see that the Bible describes this time period called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. All right. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, we know that if the tent of the body that, we, our, uh, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Remember what Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Flesh and blood doesn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Mortality is going to put on immortality. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, look at what he says here in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Thank God for that. So we are also of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that word evil could be translated worthless. There's going to be a judgment. The Bible, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, said that everything's going to be tested by fire. 
And what we built on the foundation of salvation in Christ is going to be either wood, hay, or stubble, which is going to be burnt up, or gold, silver, and precious stones. And if we have built on our salvation the things that God's wanting from us and allowing Him to do through us what He wants to, we'll be rewarded. If we not, we'll suffer loss. But I want to encourage you to take this coming judgment seat serious. You're going to be reckoned with one day. But I also want you to be scared. See, because we're all going to be measured against what each of us have been assigned by God to do, not measured against each other. Go look again at what it says here in chapter 25, verse 14 and following. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, what? Each according to their ability. Let me ask you a question. Who determines what level of responsibility you've been given, whether it's a five, two, or a one? God does. And who determines what your ability is? That's all given by God as well. Now, I don't believe that he's taught us this so that we'll try to compare now and say, well, I think I'm a five, I think you're a two, or whatever. Honestly, I don't want you to sit around and try to figure out if you're a five or a two or a one. That'd be foolish because you don't know. I don't know. And secondly, this is really here just so that we won't compare ourselves with each other. That's why. Not everybody's expected to do the same. But unfortunately, in the church over the years, we, we've heard the preachers say everybody should pull their equal weight. We're all a big part of a family here. Everybody should pull an equal amount. I used to say the same thing when I was a young preacher. 20% of the people in the church are doing 80% of the work. Ever heard that kind of statement? But the more you study the scriptures, the more you come to realize, you know what? There are going to be those who are expected to do more than others. We're just to be faithful with what it is God's gifted us to do. And actually, scripturally, the Bible says that we're to actually see ourselves as not a five. Go to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, look at verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have different parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let's use them. If it's prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If it's service, in the serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, folks, once again, we see we're not to consider ourselves more highly than we ought. And we need to understand that even if I've been called to preach and somebody else has been called to preach, God hasn't given me the same responsibility as someone else. I'm not to compare myself against a Tony Evans or anybody else that's out there, the big names. I'm to be myself. I'm to be Jim. And boy, it really made a big difference in my life early on in the ministry when I stopped trying to be something and just said, this is who God made me and I like who God made me and I'm just going to be used of him however and wherever he wants. And when he opens doors, I'm going to run through them and give me opportunity to teach. I'm going to do it. And in the same way, you find out what it is he's wired you to do. Well, how do I do that? You just go get involved in the life of your church. Get involved in some of the ministry projects that they have. You're going to find something clicks you, you can, they're going to say, hey, we have a need for help here or there. Give it a shot. If it, you find out it ain't it, that's okay. Try something else. But in time, it'll become evident to you and to the rest of the body what your gifts are and how you fit in. 
and you'll have so much fun doing whatever it is he's called you to do, you won't even care about all the other stuff. And you'll be ready for his return. Go to John 21. As you're turning to John 21, let me ask you a question. If I asked you right now to list the 12 apostles, could you do it? Probably not all of them. But if I asked you to list three, you could all go what? Peter, James, and John, right? But you know why? You know why you could say Peter, James, and John? Because if you look at the scriptures, they had greater responsibility. Even among the 12 apostles, some of these, we only know their name in the list. We don't know anything more about them. We actually know more about Philip and other people like that than we do some of the 12 apostles. Why? Because Peter, James, and John had a greater responsibility in the days and weeks and years and months to come. And that's why Jesus took them with him on the mountain when he was transfigured. He didn't take the other 12, the rest of the 12. When he healed Jairus' daughter, he kicked everybody out of the house except mom and dad and Peter, James, and John. When he prays in the garden right before the cross, he goes further by himself with who? Peter, James, and John. Even amongst the, the disciples and the apostles, not everybody had the same amount of responsibility. And in John 21, Jesus had to kind of teach these guys the same thing. Look at verse 18. Um, he's talking, Jesus is talking to Peter after he rose from the day. He says, truly I say to you, Peter, I'll throw that in so you know who he's talking to. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now here Jesus not just didn't just tell him he's going to die. He told me he's going to die by crucifixion. You're going to stretch out your hands. And be led where you don't want to go. Peter knew at that point he had just been told how he was going to die. Now Peter turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John following them. And the one who, this is John also the one who leaned back against Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who is that's going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. I'm going to say something to you that I, I hope you hear and love. Too many of you have gotten derailed a little bit or frustrated in your walk with the Lord because you've spent too much time comparing your life to people around you. Size of your house versus somebody else's house or your car or your income or how, how come my family is always dealing with sickness? How come I'm stuck in this situation versus that? And they seem to have it so much easier. Folks, you don't know, first off, what's going on in these other lives anyway. And second of all, what if God's planned you to have a harder life? What's that to you? What it is, what if he's got somebody else to live an easier life? And the Bible says that we'll be rewarded accordingly when we get to the next life. What did he tell, what did Abraham tell the rich man when he died and woke in Hades? And he sees Lazarus in the presence of God in Abraham's bosom. He says, um, in this life you had it easy and he had it hard. But now he's being rewarded. And so, folks, take your eyes off of your situation compared to others and run the race marked out for you. You don't know if you're a five or two or a one, but that's just there so that we won't compare ourselves. Now, if you look closely, the third servant was proven to be a hypocrite, someone pretending to be someone that they weren't. And if you look even more closely, you'll notice that the third servant had no relationship with the master and he didn't really know him. Look at Matthew 25, verse 24. He had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Do you hear what he said? I knew you to be a hard man. In other words, I've heard that you were a hard man. Hard to please. By the way, does that match up with who Jesus really is? Go back to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus' own words himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, there's work that he has for us to do, but it's easy. It's light when we're doing what it is that he's got for us to do because it's the only thing he's going to empower. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Go to 1 John chapter 5. I want you to see something here. I love, by the way, John understood the relationship with Jesus. He knew him. He loved him. had an intimate relationship with him. Got to see him on the Isle of Patmos. He got to see him in his glory. He got to see a lot of cool things. And look at what John says in 1 John 5 verses 1 through 3. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But the third servant said, you're a hard man. He didn't know the master. Now, let me say this. If you see God as a hard man, but which, by the way, I did for many years, the early years of my uh, Christian life, I had been taught the legalistic view and I was forever trying to make sure I was keeping the law so that I could be pleasing to God. You're going to do one of two things if you see God as a harsh master. You're going to either, one, kill yourself trying to please him and never feel like it's enough. I don't know about you, but I went down that road. It didn't matter how hard I worked, how much, I never felt like it was enough. Or two, you're going to do like this guy and just give up. You're not going to even try anymore. You're just going to quit. It's too hard. Can't do it. He's, he's demanding. He, he expects too much. Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And you're going to just bury your talent in the ground. Now, as we close tonight, I wanted to show one thing. Actually, two things from this story. One is the guys that the one had turned the five into another five into ten and the two had turned the two into four. Did you ever notice that Jesus' response to both of them is word for word the same? Did you see it? The one who had the five that had turned into ten. Look, he, look at what he says. Look at what he says. It's, it's word for word. All right. In verse 20. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, look closely, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, he also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, deliver me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, look, you can double check it. It's word for word. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Word for word. Same thing. So, folks, don't worry about how you're comparing with anybody else. Too often people say, oh, I don't I could never do as much as Billy Graham or as, as you. You're not supposed to just do what it is you're supposed to do and just walk with him on a daily basis and you'll be fine. Second thing I'm going to close with, though, is this. 
Some people might say, look at how harshly the master treated the third servant. I mean, isn't this proof that he's harsh? Look at what Jesus' response is here after the guy says, I saw he was a hard man. Verse 26, his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, he'll be more will be given and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of looks like Jesus is harsh. You need to listen closely. First off, Jesus points out the third servant's hypocrisy in his response. I mean, if he really thought that he was demanding, he would have done something with what he was given. If he really saw the master as harsh, he would have done something. Tried to put his money with the bankers and get him some stuff back. In other words, you really saw me that way, you would have done something. You, you actually, I proved that you really don't believe it, what you just said. You're just using that as an excuse. And actually, Scripture teaches us that God is loving and merciful, and patient, and kind. How he's already paid for our sins. And he did this when we were lost, and powerless, and his enemies. Romans chapter 5 makes that really clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He, he loves us. But if we reject all that he's done to keep us from experiencing his wrath towards sin, we have nothing left but to experience his wrath. The reason the third servant was dealt with harshly, because at this point, he had spurned all that the master, the gentle, loving, kind, generous master had offered to keep him from the judgment. Uh, we're going to deal with this more later on as we get later on our study of Matthew and look at hell and how Jesus described it. But have you ever noticed how Jesus described hell as the place created for Satan and his angels? It wasn't created for us, folks. It was created for Satan and his followers. We're going to get into something on a pretty deep level when we get to that study. But when we choose to listen to Satan and not believe God, we become one of his followers. And that wrath that's stored up for Satan and his angels that had the place of hell was created ahead of time for, we're destined for it if we reject. I want to close tonight with Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There's a wonderful song that has come out of this um, chapter. I wonder if you can see which one of you see what it is. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul's been laying out that both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, 
but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Does anybody see the song that's there? It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Some of you might not know that song. It's a wonderful song. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Knowing that you love us no matter what we do makes us want to love you too. It's your kindness that leads us. If you haven't seen that song, go find it. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. God's continually offering his grace and his mercy and his love but there comes a point he's trying to keep you from hell. He's trying to keep you from that wrath. But if you spurn it, there comes a point where that gentle, lowly Jesus is going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to destroy all his enemies. Make sure you're on the right side. I love you. We'll see you in a few weeks.